12. It's page 1106. And while you're doing that, you know, in the business world, a healthy business is a business that makes a good profit after tax. And cash is king. You know, but in the church, Jesus is king. And healthy churches plant churches. That's our profit. And there's an encouraging to see churches being planted and grown. It's a healthy church, right? Jesus is king, not cash. And profit, our church is growing and being planted. Praise the Lord. We want more of that, don't we? We do indeed. Acts chapter 12 we are looking at this morning. And what we're looking at in the book of Acts is what we have been looking at over the past few months is very much what we've just celebrated and prayed for this morning. The Holy Spirit using ordinary people to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God, preaching the name of Jesus and seeing lives changed. And in Acts chapter 12, we pick up the story in Peter's miraculous escape from prison. Now, before I read the text, can I ask you to do one thing? Can I ask you to think about the names of the people within the text? You'll hear, um, you'll hear names like Peter and James and Herod. You'll hear people in a home. You'll hear about Blastus and others. Just bank those names and think about those names as we read this text. And we'll read the whole of chapter 12 together. Page 1106. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, that's Peter, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, that's 16 in total. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Sentries is another name for guards. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Potentially a moment of awkward nakedness. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the door at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it, and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, Rhoda, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, 
Rhoda, it just it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, Peter said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea, little north, to Caesarea, and he stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, looking great, sat on the throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of God, not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms. Just pause on that for a moment. (laughs) He was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John. Also, Peter's miraculous escape from prison. Now, I don't know what you do for a job or what your occupation is, but if you are good at your job, before you make a decision, often you will look at different angles before coming to an informed conclusion, will you not? So I work in a high net worth insurance broker world, and we work a lot with valuers and jewelers. And before they give value to a piece of jewelry, particularly a diamond, they will examine it from different angles, depending on the depth of the diamond, the width of the diamond, the color of the diamond. They will shine light in it, and depending on all of those things, it will reflect light, light in different ways. And as a result, will determine its value. But you cannot determine its value alone by looking at it from one particular angle. If you're a journalist and you want to write something factual, you'll do the necessary research, will you not? You'll look at it from different angles. You'll draw upon different resources and come to your own informed conclusion. If you're going to price up a job and you're in the trade, what do you do? What's the size of the room? How much is it going to cost? What about this? You will look at it from different angles and you will draw a conclusion. That's what wisdom is. And what I want us to do in this particular chapter is, I want us to focus on the characters within the chapter, because I want us to look at the story from the eyes of those individual characters, to then at the end come to an informed and wise opinion of what is actually going on. And can I ask you to do this, please? Whilst we're doing this together this morning, ask yourself this, which character do I identify with? Perhaps it's behavior. Perhaps it's attitude. Which character do you draw or find parallels with? And then at the end, let's pull it together and conclude. The title of the message this morning is Our Obedience, His Plans. So let's go straight to the jugular. Every story has a bad guy in it, doesn't it? Any good story. Herod. Uh, The Herod that we see here in Acts chapter 12, we're going to put ourselves into his shoes and look at the story from the character of Herod. This is Herod 
Agrippa I. I'm just going to say Herod, because if I say Herod Agrippa I many times this morning, I will get lost in my own tongue of words. We'll refer to him as Herod. Now, for good and for evil, families have lasting power and influence on their children, do they not? We all pass down to our generations our good and the ugly. And often the mistakes and failures of parents are repeated in children. For generations, this was Herod's upbringing. Herod's grandfather, Herod the Great, oversaw the murder of all the children in Bethlehem when Jesus was around. Herod's uncle, Herod Antipas, was involved with Jesus' trial and John the Baptist's execution. Put yourself in Herod's shoes. This is his upbringing. His sister, Herodias, oversaw, was responsible for the murdering of John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa II, his son, was one of Paul's judges. Now imagine what Christmas dinner was like. <laughs> Dad, grandfather, this person is really irritating me. What should I do with him? You can imagine the advice passed down from the generations. The word murder was probably not far off their lips. But that was his upbringing. That's how he saw life. That's how he saw society. Now what's interesting about Herod Agrippa I is that he uniquely could relate to the Jewish subjects because he had a grandmother who was Jewish. However, despite this, he was begrudgingly accepted by the Jewish people. Now, this is important because during this time, at the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, many Jews would have been in the city. It would have been a busy time. And with the rise of the Christian movement, this gave Herod an opportunity to find new favor amongst the Jews by having James killed and Peter put in prison. Now, again, remember, this is Herod's, put yourself in Herod's shoes. And I have a bit of, I'm using a bit of creative license here. But if you look through the lineage of that family, a lot of the decision or the framework for making decisions would have been something like this. What's best for me? What's best for Herod? Look in the mirror. At those times, there would have been brass mirrors. So you wouldn't have seen your reflection as clearly as you would today. But you'd look in the mirror. He's probably going, what's best for me and my kingdom and my rule and my reign? If I kill James, that's going to do me good. If I get Peter in prison, that's going to be good for me. That was his framework for decision-making. That was the family's framework for decision-making. What is best for me? And so James is killed and Peter is put in prison. This works out well for Herod in the, you know, at the beginning because at the time of unleavened bread and Passover, Peter couldn't have been executed because you couldn't do that at the time. So Peter would have been in prison for several days before he would or be, could be put on public trial and then face execution. And then what we find out at the end of the story is that despite Herod having this assurance of feeling in control and on top of the world and everybody is dancing to his tune, the story doesn't end so well for Herod, does it? Not the most of exotic deaths, even if any death would be exotic, but to be eaten by worms would not be great. But you see, Herod's problems or Herod's mistake is probably more common than we think. You see, whenever we are proud of our own abilities and accomplishments, whenever we accept the flattery and praise of other people instead of directing it to God, we repeat Herod's folly and his sin, do we not? One commentator says, an instinctive reaction to an unexpected situation will reveal your heart. 
What was Herod's instinctive reaction when he got the praise, when he was dressed up, when he was all blinged up? Gold, silver, the light was shining on him. He was great. The catwalk, the life was his catwalk. He was looking great. Saturday Night Fever was playing constantly in his mind. And he was walking down the aisle. It's all about me. And when people give him praise, that's his instinct. Just lap it up. The ancient writer Josephus um, records this event, so we know it's factually accurate. And he says this, it's recorded Herod would walk into the arena full of gold and fine clothing, and the people would address him as a person more mortal in his being. Herod accepted their flattery, but on this one particular day, Josephus writes, Herod looked upward. He saw an owl perched on a rope, and he took it as a symbol of ill fortune. And at that same time, he was seized by violent internal pains, and he was carried into his palace where he died after five days of illness. Is there anything in Herod's character that you can find parallels with? Is it all about you? What's your instinctive reactions to flattery and praise? More, please. Keep it coming. But in the end, it didn't work out well for Herod. Because those who set themselves against God, we learn, the Bible says, ultimately perish. Well, there's a nice, light start for you. (laughs) Herod. It gets better, do not worry. The character of Herod. The second character we'll look at then in this story is the character of James. He had James, verse 2, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Goodness gracious, this is a cheery message this morning. What do we know about James? Well, let's put ourselves in James' shoes. James is one of the original disciples we read in the Gospels, one of the 12. Very interestingly, in Mark chapter 10, James is one of two, him and his brother, Asked Jesus a special question. Jesus, how do we get special or extra recognition in the kingdom of God? They ask him. How do we get a better seat? And Jesus says to them, listen, gents, lads, pals, friends, to be part of my kingdom will mean this, that you're going to have to suffer. Jesus actually says you're going to have to drink from the same cup that I have drunk from. But does this put... James off. What's the instinctive reaction in James's heart? To give up? That's not for me. Thank you very much. I'll go back to my trade. It's not. He continues to remain a disciple and an apostle. He continues to follow Jesus around. And what we learn from this scripture, and if you're at the advanced conference, it was spoken of so well over the last couple of days. We learn that if you follow God wholeheartedly, it does not promise you a trouble-free or a carefree life. And James knew this full well. James knew that he was going to have to drink from the same cup that Jesus drank from. Yet despite that, he continued to crack on, roll up his sleeves, and preach the name of Jesus. If Jesus were to say to you this morning, if you're coming with, Lord, just, I need some help, I need some. And Jesus said, listen, if you're going to be faithful to me for your life, you're going to drink the same cup that I have drunken from. What, what does that instinctively bring up in you? Oh, you know what, this, you know, I'm not sure. I'm on the fence. Maybe not for me. Now, Luke doesn't speculate why James perishes over Peter here, but it's certainly not because the house who we read about in a moment 
weren't praying for James. They probably were. So it, it begs the question, does it not? Why did God allow Peter to escape, but James to be murdered? Now, if you're in James's shoes, you signed up for the mission. You're ready to rock and roll. You're ready to go. You've heard Jesus speak, and but what about James's family? If you put yourself in the shoes of James's family, but, but why does this happen to my son and not the other? And we ask questions like this all the time, don't we? Why, why is that person healthy and not that person? Why does that person not realize the potential that one has? Why is there a tsunami in the Philippines? And why is there, you know, why, 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 why all the time? You know, and listen, what I don't want to do this morning is offer pat answers to very complex questions. And so there is much to be said on such topics, and we can discuss afterwards. But what I would say is there are some questions we cannot possibly answer in this life because we don't see all that God sees. My children aged seven, five, and two, they only see in part, and so they ask in part, don't they? They react in part. They moan in part. And we're like that before the living God. We're literally five-year-olds in the hands of him. But what we do learn from Scripture is this. I don't want you to draw great encouragement. The Bible says so. The evil will only have its time for a period. And there will come a day where God will destroy all evil. There will be no more tears and no more pain. But in the meantime, we can trust God. Why? Because of all the major religions in the world today, Jesus is the only who decided to become one of his subjects, suffering and dying in our place, and then asking us to worship him. All the other major religions, the God distinguishes himself from the subjects and says, you worship me from a distance. And so we can trust a God who was taken out by the one-two punch of suffering so that we might not ever have to. And the other thing I want to encourage you, if you are in the shoes of, of someone where you know a James, perhaps you're a family member or a friend and you have a James in your life who is suffering persecution and pain, let me tell you this, the greatest stories of fruitfulness in life we were, learned, we were taught over the weekend are written by people who have suffered the most suffering and persecution. You know, I say this with sober-mindedness, but sometimes we shouldn't be afraid of things that we're afraid of. Sometimes we shouldn't be scared of things that we're scared of. Think of the movie Monsters, Inc. And I forget the name of the character, but this big scary monster would come out and take the screams of the children, turn it into energy, and it would give life to this monster's land. But behind the scenes, when you put the light on, the monster wasn't that scary. It was just an act to scare the children. And actually, the great thing about the story is at the end, it was the kindness and love towards the children that created greater power. And I think persecution and suffering is a little bit like that. Sometimes we don't need to be as scared of it as we are. And that's because we have a God who is over all things. And I'll just say on this point here, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were released um, by the prison in, this, in Sanhedrin, in, this, uh, in the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 4, they prayed this wonderful prayer. And I pray this as your prayer if you're in such shoes. They say this, Lord, these people did only what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Lord, my circumstance is happening because by your will, you had decided beforehand this should happen. And whilst that sometimes is a scary place to be, there is no safer place than that in the hands of the sovereign God. 
That is James. What about Peter? It gets a little bit cheerier here, folks. You can lift up your chin and smile. Don't need to be so somber at me on this uh, October Sunday morning. Because Peter's story is a little bit different. But what would it have been like to be Peter? Think about his story. Now, his uh, career, if you will, uh, runs on a similar lines to Jesus and Paul. It's about preaching the gospel. It's imprisonment, later death. Now, Peter was in prison. Now, you're in Peter's shoes. Think about this. You're preaching the gospel. You're in exactly the same place that you were in in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was preaching the gospel and thousands were giving their life to Christ. And here he is in Acts chapter 12, just 10 chapters on, and he's in prison for doing the same thing. Goodness gracious, God, what are you doing? You know, he's there in prison. Now, he has 16 guards guarding him on a shift rotor of um, four guards at a time every three hours swapping over. But Herod has a keen interest in not letting Peter go. So the guards weren't just guarding the gates. Peter had someone chained to his left hand, and he had someone chained to his right hand. So put yourself in Peter's shoes. I've got someone chained here. I've got someone chained here. You can imagine the conversations amongst the guards. Oh, please, I don't want to be chained to Peter next. He's just going to talk about Jesus all night. Please, I don't want to be me. You can see them arguing. You take the night shift, no you. Anyway, they're there. They're chained up. They're together. They are, Peter's lying down, and what do we find Peter doing? He knows he's in prison. He knows he's going to face public trial. He knows there are loads of Jews around. He knows he could die. He could be dead. What is he doing? He's asleep. He is asleep. And he's not just in any sleep, he's in a deep sleep. Why do we know this? Because the angel had to whack him to wake him up. <laughs> Suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared. He was asleep. Man. You know, we live in a time of great anxiety, don't we? and great strife, and great trouble. Are there anybody here who are like Peter? For some reason, God has just given you the gift of faith. And despite your trials and tribulations, you can just sleep. You have that inner peace. Is that you? Can you relate to Peter? Can you sleep in times of trouble? Peter's asleep. He gets awake. He's probably thinking, which God's snoring now? I'm waking up in the middle of the night. It's like a Christian retreat all over again. I cannot get more than five hours sleep together in one go. Somebody is snoring or something is going on. Why did I sleep next to him? But he doesn't. He wakes up and it's an angel. Now Peter's kind of half, you know, you know. I had this, I was coming home from the train. True story, about three weeks, two weeks ago from London. I missed my stop because I fell asleep. And I woke up and I was at the next stop. And I thought, no, what am I doing? Honestly, I was stumbling around. And I met someone on the train. This is weird. Quarter to 12, I met someone on the train. I used my old next door neighbor. I'm like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And, um, and I got off. And he thought, I was so tired in the days. He said to his wife, which came back through Donna this week, Matthew was absolutely drunk on the train. <laughs> I promise you I wasn't. And I was just in such a, I woke up, I didn't know what, and I said to him, I said, what are you doing on the train? He goes, oh, I've started university. I said, term doesn't start till September. He went, Matt, it's September the 20th. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I was just all over the place. <laughs> you can imagine that was like for Peter, what's going on? There's a door, the chains are breaking, all oh, the things are hammering, you know, and he, walk, and he ends up going out with the angel, and the angel takes him down to the edge of the streets and then disappears from him. Peter would have known this was dangerous for him to hang around. He needed to get out of there. 
So what does he do? He runs straight to the house where he knew people would be and people would be praying for him. He goes there, knocks at the door, someone answers. It's Peter. He gets silence. Why? Because we'll learn in a moment. Rhoda had legs it the other direction. He's standing there. It's dark. It's quiet. No one's coming out. What's going on? I don't know how long he waited for. Maybe it was 5, 10, 15 minutes. And suddenly this whole gang comes out. They're excited. Shh, calm down, calm down. Just tell James what's going on. This is what's happening. I've got to get out of here. My life's in trouble. And Peter disappears. And we don't know where Peter disappears to. He reappears in Acts 15 in Antioch. Maybe that's a year or two later. And he reappears in Galatians 2. But we're not actually 100% sure what happens to Peter. What we are sure of is this. Peter was a man of faith, wasn't he? He was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, equipped to do the mission of God. He believed in the supernatural. An angel came and rescued him, and he knew after it happened, this was the Lord's hand moving. An angel had come to rescue me. And folks, there are Peters in this room, and we need to celebrate the Peters in the room. Because God has given you a gift of faith, and we want to celebrate it. We don't want to pour water on it. We want that fire. We want to give oxygen to that fire. And if that's you this morning and you feel like inside, I do have that faith. I live my life like that. But for whatever reason, I'm feeling watered down by the things of life. I want to release that from you this morning. Go and be a person, a man and a woman full of faith. Because God wants to do mighty things through you. He wants to bless this church and this community. Be stirred up in that. Very briefly, we have the soldiers and sentries. Now, these were four groups of four soldiers, and maybe you can relate to these people. And in summary, I won't go into too much detail with these people, but they were people who just went about their jobs. They did a good job. And you just imagine it for them. They were serving, they were serving Herod. They were, had Peter under guard. They thought they were doing a great job. There is no way this man is going to get past 16 of us. No chance. We're even going to tie ourselves to him. And they wake up in the morning, and you can just imagine, morning, gents, morning, lads, how are we doing? Yeah, great night's sleep. Yeah, not bad. Uh, where's Peter? You know, chains, got one chain on one arm. What's happened to Peter? Where's he gone? And a sudden sense of panic would have come upon them because they knew that they would have been responsible for the, sen- whatever, what, the prison that escaped, their sentence was now upon them. So they knew that they would be, could be put to death if this guy wasn't found. Do you imagine that? Do you have, is that like you in the workplace? You don't hit the target. The deadline's coming. What am I going to do? Panic, anxiety, stress. I've only got a certain amount of time. You start to panic. Ooh. Herod goes, don't worry. We are going to call on a search. I know who the first 16 people were out on the streets that day. They were the guards and the sentries. They were searching for this man up and down looking under every sofa and in every cupboard. Where is Peter? But they couldn't find him and they were sentenced to death. And we think of people like Keith Palmer, don't we, in Westminster, doing his job, guarding the gates of Westminster and was savagely attacked by an extremist only 12, 18 months ago. And the impact that has on his family. Police officer just doing his job. He did nothing wrong, did he? He was just guarding other people and he passed away No rhyme, no reason. And friends, maybe you are in the shoes of the soldiers and sentries and something like this. You're just mourning something. Something has died and you need space to mourn. You have no reasons why. But I want to encourage you, in the church this morning, you don't have to do it alone. 
We may not have the answers, but what I promise you, you will find here at, at Gateway Church and at churches across our land is this. You won't have to go through it alone. We are here to come alongside you, to love you, and to serve you, and to do what we can. Let's put ourselves very briefly in the angel of the Lord's shoes. Now, of course, I appreciate this has very limited um, application, because while some of you might think you're angels, uh, the reality is you're probably not. Um, during a mundane and usual night, we're introduced to the angel of the Lord, leading Peter to safety um, through the gates. Now, angels are divinely created beings. They do have supernatural powers, and they do sometimes take on human appearance. We read in scriptures, um, they talk to people. But angels are not to be worshipped because they're not divine. They are created, and they are God's servants just as we are. But what I would say, just by way of passing point here, is that there is a supernatural, and we should not, we would be unwise to either have an overemphasis on it or to ignore it altogether. But um, it is there. It is part and parcel of our reality. Some of us here, some of us are in, in such shoes where God has given us gifts of the Spirit, supernatural gifts, and we should use them. And what we want to do is not pour water on those gifts again at this church, but we want to encourage you to use them. Don't be suppressed. But be, um, what's the word? Be encouraged. Use them. Fan them into flame. And then finally, we have the people in the home. In the home of Mary, the mother of John and Rhoda. So get this right. They're sat in a room. James has been murdered. Peter is in prison. Their backs are against the wall. What do they do? Pray. Maybe they're on their knees. We understand they're praying for several days because Peter was in, was in prison for several days. Maybe there was time they were walking around. Maybe they were doing whatever they were doing, but they were praying. The fact that Peter goes straight to this house perhaps tells us something about this house, that it was a principal meeting space for early church leaders. I believe it's the same place where in Luke chapter 22, Jesus' location of the Last Supper with his disciples could have been in this place. Needless to say, it was a place of significance, and there were significant people praying. They were praying for Peter. But there were different types of characters in this home. And we learn this on the night that Peter knocks on the door. Rhoda gets up. What's that? What was that noise? What's going on? Rhoda stands up, and she runs towards the door. Who is it? It's Peter. She runs back, goes through the courtyard, back to the people. Guys, 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 Peter, we've been praying for Peter. He's at the door. And you get this kind of, this group of people looking at each other going, is she out of her mind? Has <laughs> she gone a bit crazy? <whistles> you know, what's going on? Rhoda, it must be his angel. They actually then don't just disbelieve her. They distort the truth. Not just Peter, it must be his angel. And Jews at that time would have had some belief about guardian angels. And that's probably where that came from. Rhoda, you're out of your mind. There are some of you in this church that are in the shoes of Rhoda. And again, I want to give you encouragement. Some people get it, they believe it, and they act in that faith. Yep. And I believe there are some people here that are suppressed. For whatever reason, you don't feel that you can do that. And I want to encourage you to be the best roader that you can be. To get it, to believe it, and just to live in light of it. You're not to overthink it. 
Not to play a mental chess game about it, but just live in light of the truth. As Peter was at the door, so Jesus is alive. And go and live in light of that truth. Go and be the best roader that you can be for Paul and for Bournemouth. And be encouraged to be a roader in a land that does. It um, idolizes intellectual um, abilities. And so we can often feel suppressed if we're roaders. And I want to encourage you to be the best roader that you can be for the glory of God and for the good of this church. Because what we see in this home is that there are other people that perhaps were intellectuals. They were thinking about it and they had great exposure. You know, Mary was the mother of John, also known Mark. We believe he wrote the Gospel of Mark. Peter tells him, go and tell James what is going on. I don't know if James was there. He may have been somewhere else. But they would have known James, the brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James. These were really significant people in the home with great experiences, learned people. And what do they do when they hear the truth? It can't be. And some of you are in these shoes this morning. You have been coming to church for years. You have read book after book. You have attended meeting after meeting. And you believe it. You love Jesus. And you do. You love him with all your heart. But when we get up and pray for revival, you're going, I'll do it because I know I have to. But in my heart, it's not going to happen. I just don't believe it. Peter won't be at the door. When someone, we're going to pray for healing, and you've read about it, and you see, you understand the pros and cons, and we're praying, and you go, I'll do it because I need to do it. It's the right thing to do. But in your heart, they're probably not going to be healed. Peter's not at the door. And I would encourage you, if that is you, God wants to tell you this morning, Peter's are at the door. Don't overthink it. So which person can you relate to more? Herod? Peter, Rhoda, the people in the home, which one do you draw more parallels with? I pray you find great encouragement regardless of who you draw parallels with, even the likes of Herod. Because here at Gateway Church this morning, there's forgiveness and repentance and you can find new life and walk forward with the God of the Bible. And so let me close this by four general points of application, and then we can respond however the Holy Spirit is talking to you in your heart to respond appropriately this morning. And these are very four short points, I will say this, because despite all of those characters, there is one character I haven't mentioned as much, God. And the four general points of application are this. The first point is this, the gospel will always go forward. From Luke's point of view, the emphasis in here is the triumphant progress of the gospel, which is not hindered by the likes of Herod, the disbelief of the people in the home, the people like Peter or Rhoda or anybody else, because my friend, the gospel will always go forward and you cannot stop it. Praise the Lord. Like Luke writes after Stephen is murdered by being stoned, despite persecution, the gospel will continue to go forward. It will grow. The church will grow. People will become Christians, and we will be encouraged as a result of it. My friend, we live our life under the sovereignty of God. The church is the best place to be. It's not carefree or trouble-free but it is the best, the best because it is life and it's life and it's all its fullness. Second thing is this, prayer is powerful. When the church prays, the cause of God will go forward and the enemies will come to naught, even if this does not exempt us from suffering, persecution and death. I remember one person said to me, a man in his 60s, he goes, Matt, I'll be honest with you, I want all of the fruits of the churches in places like Asia where the church is exploding, 
but I want it without the persecution. And isn't that true for all of us? Lord, we just want all the fruit. Give us the fruit. But please don't. I don't want any of the nasty stuff. Thirdly, no power can triumph over the word of God. And those who attempt to harm God's people will in the end face judgment themselves. You know, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat. And although with assurance that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail against the church, because why? What is it built upon, my friend? The, the rock. Who is the rock? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died, was crucified, rose again, and is now ascended at the right hand of the Father. No power can triumph over the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. He is the Logos, the word. And fourthly and finally, the Bible has the final word. Do you love Luke's artistic writing and his prose in chapter 12? Because how does it start? James is dead. Peter's in prison. And Herod is triumphing. But how does it end? Herod's dead. Peter's free. And the word of God is triumphing. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but it will not last. In the end, only the kingdom of God will remain standing. And we who belong to the kingdom of God, why don't we stand and pray as I then hand back to Matthew Hosea. Lord, we stand in this truth that the kingdom of God will always stand. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word. We want to thank you for the characters in this story. We want to thank you for Luke recording it and writing it so that by your sovereign plan we can read it and it can have an effect for good on our life today. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning who can relate to one or two of those characters. And Holy Spirit, I pray as you're working upon hearts right now, they would know they can respond well, they can respond with brothers and sisters this morning. And I would say this to you, in this attitude of prayer, as our heads might be bowed or eyes closed or open, if you want to respond, please come and pray. Please come and seek. If you're a roader and you want to find more encouragement to continue to be the best roader you can be, come and pray with us. If you feel like you're Herod and your life is all about you and you want to repent, then please come and repent with us. Friends, the living God is with us this morning and you're encouraged to respond. Amen. 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 Thank you. Amen.